the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a great question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, I had planned on talking with um, uh, a clinical psychologist from uh, New York who had uh, has written a... Um, well, she's in the middle of writing a trilogy, the Mission from Venus trilogy. Book two is uh, the more recent uh, one called The Wanderers on Earth. Her name is Dr. Susan Plunkett, but for some reason we haven't been able to connect. So, in as much as this is um, Mardi Gras, and I was planning to, um, I, I did reach out to uh, somebody who's been on the show a couple times when we've talked about Mardi Gras or New Orleans, is uh, the author of um, the the book, uh, he wrote a book for the 300th anniversary of New Orleans, uh, about New Orleans, called City of a Million Dreams. And, um, and he's, he's uh an award-winning writer and filmmaker, Jason Berry. He's been on the show several times. Anyway, I invited him to be on the show today. He wasn't able to because he was traveling to Connecticut to promote the film based on his book about New Orleans. And uh, we'll we'll try and get together with Jason another time. But I thought, well, why don't, as long as I'm doing encores in the third half of our three-hour tour with C.Q. Scafidi and David and Rosalind, I thought, why not... Uh, pull up uh, an encore with uh, Jason Berry since we have uh, this this hole in the schedule created by a uh, miscommunication with Susan Plunkett. So um, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and do that. Um, we'll we'll uh, we'll turn our attention to Jason Berry and we'll just start celebrating Mardi Gras right now. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My uh, guest this hour is returning to the show. I think it was back in uh, January, maybe maybe it was that long ago, when uh, uh, Jason Berry joined me to talk about his book, City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. And uh, this is really kind of a part two because there's so much to talk about with regard to New Orleans. So... With that, I welcome back to the show, joining me by phone, Jason Berry. Jason, welcome to the show. 
Tom, always a pleasure, and thank you. Um, and, and you've been on the show a couple times, actually, because I, I remember we did uh, talk a little bit about some of your investigative journalism work with uh, regard to pedophilia and uh, predatory priests and so on. Um, but, uh, but I, but I want to revisit the, the story of New Orleans because it has so many moving parts and, and different aspects. And, of course, in uh, recent, well, over this past year, we've uh, uh, seen people uh, uh, talking about the removal of uh, statues, uh, Civil War generals, heroes, they were considered when the statues were erected um but that's a that's a part of new orleans history as much as anything else isn't it it is indeed and i would say the emotional fires have have gone down a good deal since uh mitch landrew in the final year of his mayoralty uh, with the full support or six to one support of the city council, uh, dismantled four um, Confederate monuments. Um, I guess the issue that uh, the new mayor, Latoya Cantrell, has been dealing with is where those uh, statues should go. Uh, they're, they're, the fourth monument actually is a, uh, oh, well, it's, it, it it commemorates what is called the Battle of Liberty Place, and I don't think it is going to be reinstalled anyplace else because it uh, commemorates a revolt um, uh, in, in after uh, Reconstruction uh, against the police and the Republican Party, which was trying to hold a constitutional convention. So um, that is pretty much uh, non grata, you might say, even with a lot of the conservative groups. But the, the three statues that are at issue, you might say, and where they will go is still an open question, are Robert E. Lee, um, uh, Jefferson Davis, and, um, oh my gosh, who is the... The third one, I'm glad we're, because I'm drawing a blank on the third one. It'll come to me in a moment. Oh, uh, P.T. Beauregard, who uh, was a, a general for the Confederacy, but a very interesting figure in that after the Civil War, Beauregard, who was a trained engineer, began making moves toward reconciliation with the black leadership. By the time the statue was put up, uh, more than a generation later, after his death, uh, they put him on a horse uh, commemorating his role in the Civil War. So the three statues taken together, all of which went up you know, in the 1890s uh, up until the early 20th century, collectively represented uh, the symbolism of the resurgent white South. Lynching was the tool by which white supremacy regained its power after the war. And that fact has been sort of nettlesome, I think, to a lot of the preservationist groups 
and conservatives who kept arguing, well, these statues are history, they represent history. And the other side, Mayor Landrieu among others, uh, argued, well, these statues are symbols of white supremacy, not so much history because the South lost the war. So that's kind of where the debate ended. Even the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruled that the city was well within its rights to remove the statues because it had the legal authority. That's not the case in other states. For example, in Virginia, you may have followed uh, you know, some of the dispute um, in Richmond over the long uh, row of, of Confederate monuments. They installed one to Arthur Ashe, the famous tennis player, uh, some years ago. But it's the legislature that controls uh, the standing or status of those monuments. Aside from the Civil War, what are some of the the historical uh, significant components to the evolution of New Orleans? Well, I think the most developed in New Orleans in the 20th century uh, was jazz. It's the Native American art form. It arose with a, a constellation of major artists, uh, Louis Armstrong, you know, most people among them, Billy Roll Morton, uh, could go down the long list. They took a, a sound that was associated with the, and a, and a diaspora in the early 20th century, 20s and 30s, they took it out to Chicago, New York, and points afar. Um, and the city now really markets itself as the the birthplace of jazz. So I would say that probably has been um, the most important development associated with the city until Hurricane Katrina, uh, which of course (laughs) made us a disaster uh, headline for a long time. But now I think New Orleans represents a certain uh, comeback, uh, a kind of rebirth. And that too has added to uh, the cultural resilience associated with the city. As it begins to reestablish itself, um, how does how does the modern or contemporary political climate um, of of this this resurgence of white supremacy impacting? New Orleans and and its rebirth? Well, I would say the resurgence of white supremacy was a major factor in the opposition to the dismantling of the monuments. The city spent a million dollars, much of it in very uh, high-priced security to keep uh, surveillance on uh, neo-Nazi and Klan groups that were there trying to to thwart the dismantling. And in that, the city prevailed. Since the monuments have been removed, the presence of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, I would say, at least from what one follows in the media, in New Orleans is almost negligible. We haven't, thank God, had any kind of riots as 
you know, we saw in Charlottesville. New Orleans is really a blue city. It's a democratic stronghold. It's majority African-American. And, um, you know, while there are certainly, you know, conservatives and Republicans who live within the city limits, uh, the city itself is an economic engine of the state. And even conservative lawmakers, uh, I think, recognize that. So although the state has, uh, as a whole, has been uh, percentage-wise supportive of Trump, um, you don't see... We have not had the same kind of uh, violent eruptions that that other states have had. And I think part of that is because uh, the tourist economy is uh, so central uh, to the state and its uh, ongoing uh, rebuilding efforts. My guest is Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. And we'll have more with Jason straight ahead.
everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. My guest is Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. And we'll have more with Jason straight ahead. You know, New Orleans has such a reputation for being such a blend of cultures, um, which has evolved throughout its its history um, to, you know, what it's known for today with the carnival parade and and uh, some of the you know just just the the jazz presence and the impact of uh, african-american musicians on american-based music it's um is is that actually new orleans or is that the image of new orleans well, I'd say the answer is, frankly, both. Uh, the music has a deep and powerful presence in the city, and it naturally uh, lends itself to the image of the town. You know, the, the book I wrote, City of a Million Dreams, argues that the city's beguiling personality uh, is shaped by a long tension between a culture of spectacle and uh, a city of laws, the legal apparatus. Uh, each of the major episodes in the book uh, chronicles the way this popular culture of particularly jazz funerals and carnival traditions, say, of, of the black Indians, Mardi Gras Indians, kept colliding with um, a legal apparatus that was trying to uphold white supremacy and ultimately failed, as it failed across the South as well in the 1960s. Um, but what you have today is, is a, a tourist economy that depends heavily on the public perception um, of the parading culture, both the Mardi Gras and uh, during... Uh, the jazz festival in the spring when so many of the marching groups are out in full flower. And, uh, of course, the, the restaurants and the rich uh, architectural uh, patent of the city. So, in a sense, New Orleans, I think, uh, has gotten a new lease on life, you might say, with all of the rebuilding since Hurricane Katrina by uh, promoting uh, its cultural blend as you say and that that cultural blend is does not go back as far as most of us tend to think well uh, <laughs> i would say it goes back to the founding of the city in 1718 um but but yet i know but but i know mm -hmm. musicians for example who um uh, under would not so very long ago within maybe the last 50 to 60 years talked about situations where blacks and whites were not allowed to perform together oh that's absolutely true yes the acknowledgement 
of that blended society did really not emerge, I would say, until the 1970s after the uh, federal court decisions. You know, it, it's quite striking that Preservation Hall, which is so uh, famous as, uh, you know, the temple of traditional jazz right in the heart of the French Quarter, it was founded in 1960 by an art dealer, Larry Bornstein, who very soon on uh, sold it to uh, uh, the Jaffe's, uh, Alan and, and Sandy Jaffe, who had moved down from Pennsylvania, were jazz aficionados. He also had a degree from Wharton uh, School of Economics, which, uh, you know, gave him, you know, quite a uh, quite a slant on how to do business. He was also a very accomplished tuba player. And during uh, the early 1960s, I can't, I, the street, I can't help it, but only in <laughs> New Orleans would somebody refer to somebody as an accomplished tuba player. <laughs> well... I won't mention any names, but there are some tuba players who are not accomplished. But anyway, this guy was sitting in with the band in the club that he owned. And and most of these musicians adored uh, Alan Jaffe. He helped them. He not only helped rebuild their careers, but if there were medical issues, he'd take them to the doctor. I mean, he was a principal guy. And so here he is playing tuba in Preservation Hall, I think it's 1960, and David Brinkley comes to town with an NBC <laughs> camera crew, and he does a piece on Preservation Hall. And this is right in the middle of all the civil rights struggles. The city is, in a legal sense, governed by the laws of segregation. And so it's illegal for a white musician to be playing in a band with African-Americans. So this goes out on national television, and all of a sudden the city fathers have to decide, well, wait a minute, what are we going to do? Are we going to send the cops in to bust Preservation Hall, which is pulling in tourists? That's one small cameo I cite in the book on the way in which the, the cultural river that was flowing through those years with its wellsprings far back before the Civil War at the slave dances, dances of enslaved Africans, I should say, at Congo Square, fed that powerful stream. So the city kept changing because of the music, because of the popular culture, because of the parading groups. It had to make accommodations for what people wanted. And and that's true by, you know, anecdotally by, by stories I've heard of, you know, black and white musicians breaking the law and and playing together in after hours places and you know under the under the radar, occasionally being raided and arrested and so on. Oh, you know, there are stories, a legion of stories like that. One of the ones that really comes to mind involves uh, Al Boletto, who who was a good friend of mine. He died several years ago. Al was a terrific uh, bebop uh, player on alto sax. He, he later had a big band, uh, did some marvelous sets at the Jazz and Heritage Festival over many years. When he was very young and starting out, he would sneak into black clubs just to be there to absorb the music. And, you know, they kind of look at him and say, okay, we'll go sit in the corner. Don't make any noise, you know. 
But if the cops would come in, you know, the bartender could be arresting for having this white kid sitting there and he's grooving to the music. There are lots of, of stories like that. Uh, Dr. John, who, you know, passed away just some months ago, right. is probably, you know, one of the more famous musicians of recent years. And, you know, when he was 15 years old, he was crossing the color line at, at a time when it was, you know, dicey to do so. Yeah, it was it was still illegal. I, I mean, there, there were people jailed for that. There were indeed. Uh, in fact, the actor Randolph Scott, I don't think he's remembered by a lot of people anymore, but he was pretty prominent back in the 50s. He starred in a lot of westerns. He came to New Orleans and was a jazz lover, and he went to the Dew Drop Inn, which was uh, uh, you know, a black club, uh, in what is now called Central City. And they went in there to, you know, enjoy an evening of music. And, you know, the bartender, I guess the waiters all welcomed him. People knew who he was. And the cops happened to come in that night. Well, they arrested this famous actor for sitting <laughs> in a black club. And the judge dismissed the charges because he was a celebrity. So he let him off easy. But it was an example of the shape of things to come. And the people that that helped shape those things. Absolutely. You know, um, Art Blakey, the drummer, famously said, when you put an idea out into the world, the world owns it. He was talking about musical streams, musical notes. Um, Obviously, songs are copyrighted, as they should be. But... In, in you know in the larger oxygen supply of music, and this is not just reflecting on jazz, but you know you find it in in many art forms. Um, there's a certain common currency that that develops as as music changes, as society changes. You know, hip hop in many ways is telling the story of uh, young African-Americans who've been at the margins who are pushing, you know, not only to get on stage, but to have their stories heard. And it has quite, as we now know, quite a crossover appeal, you know, with young whites. This is a story of popular culture. And I think New Orleans, in a very real sense, and I'm not saying this out of chauvinism or anything, but I think New Orleans has really been a pioneer in that regard. Um, you know, uh, Langdon Winter, uh, who was a really good writer for Rolling Stone back in the day, uh, in the Rolling Stone history of rock and roll, says that New Orleans has the longest and continuous history of playing rock and roll music of uh, any place around. Well, back in the 50s, before it was called rock and roll, before Elvis, you might say, revolutionized everything, they were playing rhythm and blues, the early Fats Domino hits, you know, walk into New Orleans. Sure. Uh, Ain't that a shame? All those songs people still dance to. They were called R&B, and then it became rock and roll. So the city has really been a kind of progenitor in that sense. And you see it now with bounce music, which you know has come out of many of the marginal neighborhoods in an economic sense of the city. It is a The music is a life force, I believe, of New Orleans. The... Um the way that New Orleans evolved, would it have evolved 
had it not been a port city? That's an interesting question. One of the things I really wrestled with in writing this book, City of a Million Dreams, was how how the river, in a sense, uh, shaped the character of the place. People from disparate countries, far-flung places. I mean, it's easy to romanticize and say the French and the Spanish and the Germans and the Irish came all true. When you deal with African Americans, there is that that deep awareness of ancestors who came in chains. So not everybody came by any stretch on equal terms. And it's often easy, you know, to kind of take a colorblind attitude toward this, you know, look at the past through, you know, rose-colored glasses. But because it was a port and because there were so many Native Americans there as the city got off the ground, there were endless examples of what we might call fundamental negotiations of how people were going to live. Bienville, the founder of the city, French-Canadian, nobleman, covered with snake tattoos to demonstrate the Indians that he could fight, and he was a very fierce warrior. He needed to anchor the food chain, and he needed Indians who lived in the area to help with that. So the city, in a sense, was able to survive because of his diplomacy with Indians. You know, you move ahead in time and you see in the mid-19th century so many of the Irish and Italian immigrants who came fleeing, you know, the poverty in those countries, trying to find a, a new place where they could live. Well, the New Basin Canal, which was built to link Lake Pontchartrain to one of the central uh, arteries, waterways flowing into uh, the city, was built largely by the Irish. Uh, we don't know exactly how many of them died, but it was it was awful work, uh, such that many of the white uh, power brokers, you might say, would not let their slaves, uh, even for daily wages paid to the owners, go work in digging that canal because it was so dangerous. People were dying of, of yellow fever and cholera. So, you know, it was immigrants who built this city, even though when people come and, and see these large mansions in the Garden District or the elegant old structures in the French Quarter, you know, the story behind those buildings is, well, famous balconies, wrought iron balconies, French Quarter were largely the result of Creoles of color, freedmen who knew how to forge, and many of the ironwork designs are similar to ones in Cuba. So there was definitely a, uh, a Spanish overlay in the way in which those peoples came together and created the balconies and the screen porches that are so famous today. So it really was a crossroads of humanity. And and it's kind of interesting. I, I have this impression of uh, of of lots of different peoples in lots of different ways arriving in New Orleans because it's a port city, and then the the blending that occurred culturally through 
music and and maybe art to a lesser degree um sort of moving its way through the country up the river i i think that's a pretty accurate take on what happened tom uh one of the things that struck me in, in doing the research for this book, City of a Million Dreams, was how in the early 19th century, you find people coming downriver to kind of seek their fortunes in New Orleans. The, the famous architect and master builder, Benjamin Latrobe, was chief among them. He came to build the waterworks, and he ended up dying of yellow fever before he finished the job. By the same token, you know, this city, which in the 1850s was the largest slave market in the United States, was unable, because of its civic mentality, and I mean the people who governed the city, to um, assure that the infrastructure was clean enough uh, in terms of water, in terms of streets, where sometimes goats and pigs would sink into the muck after heavy rains. It was an ill-governed city for all of its wealth. Once the Civil War comes and the city is occupied by the Union forces, it is well-governed for a period of three and a half years by generals who, of course, were hated by many members of the white population. But in a sense, by the time you get into uh, the era after the Civil War, pushing the idea of the city as a place that had to function better begins to arise. And um, in following that thread of the history, I was really pulled along by so many of these people who uh, really created a, a kind of world unto themselves, uh, harking back to that that long story of people from different places coming and, and finding their place in the sun, so to speak. Are there, I, I was just trying to think, there, there probably are only a handful of cities in the U.S. that have even close to as rich a history as New Orleans. Well, I would agree with that. Uh, certainly, New York is the chief example. I mean, it's the city of cities. It's a city of immigrants. Now, sadly, what we see is that Manhattan is so expensive because it's become an international finance center that few people can't afford, uh, you know, the rents or to own. Uh, Chicago certainly comes to mind. I've always been fascinated by the, the history of Chicago and how it has evolved and I guess the other chief example to me, or two examples, um, would be Los Angeles and San Francisco. Very different cities. Um, you know, San Francisco, having so many Chinese who, who settled there, and now with Silicon Valley, um, you, you see the same problem as in New York, uh, unless someone you know happened to buy their home uh, before the you know dot com explosion it's almost out of reach for ordinary people to buy homes there and they've got a tremendous homeless problem as well la you know has been shaped by so many different peoples uh, particularly mexicans who who went there 
uh, and it's such a large city and it's so spread out that, and I, I don't say this to sound, you know, condescending. I live in New Orleans. New Orleans is a poor city. L.A. is not. But, you know, L.A. is so diffuse. It's so spread out. San Francisco is beautiful, but, you know, they can't find housing for enough people. All the cities of this country right now, particularly with climate change, are are struggling to reestablish a a foundation and to maintain a certain identity. I mean, the big struggle in New Orleans right now is twofold. There's there's still a great deal of poverty, and, um, you know, we need uh, the kind of programs to help get working people who do not have educations into, you know, decent housing and better jobs. But the larger question is water. Um, We have had just in the last three or four months uh, heavy flooding from rainfall in areas that never flooded during Hurricane Katrina. And, of course, this is a national story. Many municipalities and rural areas are, are faced with water management as the climate change it changes and as vertical discharges of water coming down from the sky become so intense. So, I don't know, 300 years on, the city is, <laughs> is standing there, you know, facing the future with music behind it and everybody hoping we can, you know, remake the sewer system so that <laughs> we don't float away. It's uh, there are so many aspects to this, and, and unfortunately, we're running out of time. I have a feeling we're going to end up, Jason, getting together from time to time to explore this more because there's just so so many parts to uh, the. All cities have their their history and all of that, but but not it's really only a handful that that have as rich. Uh, a history and as much impact on uh, American culture ultimately as New Orleans. Well, I would agree with that. And uh, in writing this book, City of a Million Dreams, I, I tried to capture that that essence. And I, too, have enjoyed our dialogue, and I would welcome uh, coming back on your program whenever you choose to have me yeah we should we should uh revisit this from time to time and what what uh what what else are you up to these days well i have all but finished a film documentary based on one dimension of the book the film is called city of a million dreams and it uses jazz funerals and burial traditions as a lens on the evolution of the history so um we are starting to enter in film festivals and our great hope is that we will have the launch in the early months of next year well we'll have to get together and talk about that too i will make sure you get a dvd <laughs> all right hey jason or a link jason great talking with you again as always and uh, uh best of luck with the film tom the pleasure's mine thank you so much all right My guest is Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. From the Tom Sumner Show.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! 
from the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. few years, a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country, which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, We're seated now at a table, across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, sir, uh, you, you are depressed. Yeah. Uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good-looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir, That's why if I'm I... mainly depressed. Well, may I, may, I, may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know. <laughs> you're very kind. But you are. You're not you're an unattractive very, person. You're very sweet, but I, I know the, the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. <laughs> Oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you very wow. much, sir. Uh, madam. Madam. Um, there's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt, uh, looking very much like an actor. Uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between... Uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. <laughs> I, I want to explain that. You do have blonde hair. May we sit and talk with you, sir? Uh, if you are so uh, in your mind, too. <laughs> yes. Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor? Yes, I uh, happen to be a uh, lesbian. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think... <laughs> I think, sir. I think you... Can I check you on that? I think it's... Uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what? Thespian. Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes, yes. I'll never get that wrong again. <laughs> Sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America today? The greatest actor in America is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> I think she's... Well, she's a, she's a great actress. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean an actor-actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would pattern myself after... I love that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. Very much. <laughs> so, uh, so you're trying to... I try to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much. I love her. Well, you know, usually when people... I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. <laughs> Marty Giroux. That again, Mar Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. <laughs> I love that picture yeah. that much well, sir, that I, I became everything in it. <laughs> I see. Sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor. No, actually. I'm not an actor, well, I'm but, I'm, but I love to hang out here. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure speaking. Well, it was a pleasure almost to be an actor. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, uh, good luck on your wending. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, uh, goodbye. If I can do anything for you, you just call upon me, sir. Can I talk to you now? <laughs> no. No. Okay. okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. Right. I watched you before in the coffee house. All right, ladies. Goodbye. So long. I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> uh, We're going to a corner of the coffee house now. Uh, on the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils, and I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. <laughs> and the painting... Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, the painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you. Gradually blending into the color of your suit. You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... Uh, what is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. <laughs> Corinne Corfu, uh, you are yes. Greek. You I can... hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, you're, that is a Greek name, and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. <laughs> well, don't you know your don't you know your derivation? No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. <laughs> a band of gypsies. And you were brought up where? I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami. <laughs> The Persian Gulf. No, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest Sir, is called I, the Persian Gulf. I would like to talk to you about your paintings. Now, yes, you certainly may. Are, it's my life. Color are, and art. I are, love art. They are very unusual. I notice that... God bless you for your perceptions. <laughs> I notice one... You also... Uh, you sculpt, too, I notice. There's Main, uh, sculpting and painting. All the arts. Uh, there is a, a metallic sculpture there that is very interesting. Yes, metal, metallic. What do you call that? It's just a series of wires uh, in a grid-like effect. What oh, you mean you, above the door? Yes, what do you call yes, that? Yes, that's called the air conditioning. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I did not uh, make that. No. The, the, the fetters, the fetters company made, but it's very beautiful. Yes. Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they don't blow air out. So <laughs> like the, the, the machines. No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? Yes, you certainly may. That painting there that is entitled... The Gull on a Hot Rock. Yes. Now, I don't see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. Yes, well, I saw the Gull on a Hot Rock from over five miles away. Uh, oh, I, I see. I was standing on a cliff. That's why I painted in the perspective, the three little dots. Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closer? Certainly, not too close. Yes. yes. Now, that is not paint those dots. They look like, that's, those are flies. Yes, sir. they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> and then I... Uh, you pasted them onto them? little dots of blue and put them on the dots. And, and they represent the gold on the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture, <laughs> then I have no picture. <laughs> they fly away, I got nothing, Charlie. I see. In the dark. Well, I excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir... May I ask you about this particular abstract? Yes, they're mainly impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic. Yes, this one is more of a, an academician type of painting. No, it's not. Well, for instance, it's very graphic, it's very graphic. Yes, it's, it's very graphic, the, it's very graphic. The, <laughs> it's a draftsman-like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti, the limp salad looks like limp salad, and the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh, no, that's not a picture, that's my supper. <laughs> I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame and in my easel. Oh, uh, that's my dinner. I eat that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. sir. It looks. Do you like? Wait a minute. 
Do you really like it? Well, it is. Do you think it looks like the a, composition a is collage rather... of... Uh, yes, it, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs> if you really like it, I can lacquer it up and give it to you for 40 hours. No, I'm afraid, I'm no. afraid I wouldn't want to take your, deprive right. you of your supper, sir. How about just a coffee and cake? <laughs> Maybe not for $20. No, sir. I'm... Give me a dollar and a half for the coffee. <laughs> sir, I'm really not interested. Give me 40 cents you can have. All right, here's 40 cents, sir. All right. Thank you very here's much. Here's the coffee and cake. Nice working with you. <laughs> yes, sir. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your can tie. I... I don't want the coffee. No, you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep Give that. me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? <laughs> All right. Goodbye. In a corner of the coffee house, there's a gentleman sitting with a very, very strange instrument on his lap. Uh, sir, may we speak with you? Hello. <laughs> Uh, what is your name, sir? May we get your name? Uh, my name is uh, Charlie Grape. <laughs> Charlie Grape? Yes. Uh, do you perform here at the uh, coffee house? Yes, uh, on occasion I do, and then they uh, they kind of get mad at me, and then I don't. I think I can get permission for you to play for us. I'd well, like can to... you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I would... It's the first time I've ever gotten permission here. We'd certainly like to hear a sample of your music. Certainly. Let me just get tuned up. I'm trying to find an A here. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Got it first shot out of the box. My A. Now, what are you going to play for us? Uh, 22 men. All right. For the record, 22 men. 22 men. Here we Sung go. Sung by Charlie Grape. Here we are. <laughs> I get mainly A out of it. <laughs> right. I don't get more than A out of it. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down, down to the ground. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Would you like to hear the release? <laughs> uh, do you have one? Yeah. Now, twenty-two men fell down and hurt their That's not a release, sir. That's the same as the... Uh, yeah. Bridge. Okay. Okay, how about another completely different song and a new tune? Yes, I'd like okay. Can you make it up on the spot? I certainly can. It's my best part. This is extemporaneous. Ex yeah, whatever. When two German soldiers hurt their knees. <laughs> Twenty-two German soldiers. I think sir, you know sir, that no, tune. It's yeah. very similar to the other one. Yeah, well, how does it differ? It differs in the fact that the first 22 men were not German soldiers. <laughs> well, is this The enough? second 22 men are German soldiers. Well, it's the same. You, can you play it's the same that they hurt their knee. That's right. You caught me there. Yeah. Can you sing something completely different? Okay. Completely different. You know, the uh, the Calypso balladeers make up songs right on the spot, topical songs. Yes, they Can do. Can you do that? I'll try to. Okay. Okay. 22 Calypso men. <laughs> no, Is that a, what you meant? No, I meant something topical. Something topical? Yes. I'll try something topical. Let's see what's happening in the world today, here in our great nation. Got it. Big Dick Nixon hurt his knee. Big Dick Nixon hurt his knee. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 